0: Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. I'm Tom Gilligan, Director of the Hoover Institution. For more than a century, our mission has been dedicated to generating policy ideas that promote economic prosperity, national security, and democratic governance. The dissemination of our work has led to significant impacts on important public policy initiatives here and around the world. These briefings provide an opportunity to hear directly from some of our top scholars to inform the discussion on COVID-19 as our nation begins the complex task of navigating our way toward a safe and open economy. The institution is dedicated to finding solutions to these difficult challenges. Today we'll be discussing federalism and looking at how we handle a virus that knows no boundaries in a country where powers are divided amongst the federal, state, and local government. Thanks for joining us today. I want to remind you that we will be taking questions from the audience, and I want to encourage you to submit yours using the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen. Today's briefing is from John Yu, and it's entitled, COVID-19 and Federalism. John is a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and has served in all three branches of government, including the U.S. Department of Justice, the Senate Judiciary Committee, and the Supreme Court. John, welcome. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Uh, Thanks, Tom. It's great to be with everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Just want to warn everybody, I can't see you on the other side of the Zoom, unlike when we teach class at Berkeley. Sometimes that can lead to very, very disturbing images. So here, unfortunately, I can't, But in terms of you guys, I can't call on you either if I have questions. So we both benefit from this new world we live in.
0: Good. John, uh, I'm sure everybody appreciates you being here, and, I, and many of them, I'm sure, appreciate that you can't see them. That's <laughs> the nature of it. Um, I want to kick this off just by jumping right in the middle of this federalism debate. Uh, federalism is about the division of authority amongst different political leaders at different levels. We've seen some governors be very aggressive in embracing shelter-in-place and stay-at-home orders to flatten the curve. Other governors have been more open arguing that the local conditions didn't warrant what they did. Governors who have adopted very rigorous shutdown policies uh, have often been confronted with by their citizens and, and city and local leaders with their authority. And then overlaying it all is the federal government who have done some things uh, to complement and sometimes to compete with what the local officials are doing. Um, I have a good buddy, Steve. Uh, he and I talk about this a lot, and his, his take on this is often we don't have a plan. And my retort is always, we have lots of plans. Uh, fr- frankly, his, you know, his concern is, who's in charge here? What's going on? How do we understand this from uh, our system of government? So you just described uh, the beauty
1: and some of the pitfalls of our uniquely federal system of government. We're not like a China, a South Korea, or France. We don't have one unitary government where everybody down to the policeman on the street is an employee of Paris or Beijing or Tokyo or soul. Instead, we have one federal government, which has limited, enumerated powers given to it by the Constitution. And then everything else that isn't specifically given to the federal government is retained to the states, which we call the police power. Now, the federal government doesn't have a right to regulate public health. It's Mm -hmm. just not in the Constitution. So we assume that the major frontline policymakers about public health, about pandemics, which existed back in the 18th century when the constitution was written too. There's a great yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia shortly after the constitution came into effect. That's gonna be up to the states. The federal government instead has two specific powers it can use to support the states in their choices, and there are 50 different choices about policy. Uh, One is the right to regulate interstate commerce which is a movement of people and goods and services across state borders, um, which is some use in this pandemic, uh, if you, especially if you want to stop people from coming into the country mm-hmm. who might be bringing the uh, coronavirus with them. But the major power we're seeing here is Congress's power to tax and spend for the general welfare.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and in this, using this power, that's how Congress is taking right, billions, trillions of dollars now and pushing it out to support state policies by more generous unemployment compensation, by purchasing equipment, medical supplies, by providing expertise, and by encouraging research and development of a vaccine or cure. Now, the downside is, as you said, Tom, no one seems to be in charge. That means you have 50 governors who are making up their own policies. I'd say there's two, I think, good defenses for that system. It may not act quickly but also doesn't make mistakes quickly either. It's Mm -hmm. a risk averse approach to government where you have trial and error. You have 50 different what Justice Brandeis called laboratories of democracy out there, which allow for experimentation. We'll see how things go here versus Texas or Florida, and then other states can adopt those Mm -hmm. policies which seem to work. Mm -hmm. It also means that local officials who are more responsive to the people can make policies best suited to local conditions. The policies that work in California are not suited for a New York City or a Chicago, and maybe not for a Texas or a Florida either. It also uh, means that uh, that offering of diverse policies means that states and the federal government have to compete for the support of us, the people. Mm-hmm. If we don't like what states are doing, we can go to the federal government. If we don't like what the federal government is doing, we can try to press for change at the state's. And the founders hope that competition between the federal and state government would lead to both ultimately good policy, but also protect our individual rights as citizens, our freedoms and liberty, liberty, by making sure government doesn't go too far, doesn't overreact and takes away our liberties in exchange for whatever the policy of the day, policy crisis of the day is.
0: Yeah. Uh, so it- So federalism, a lot of distributed authority about public policy, and the way in which that uh, distribution is enforced is through the Constitution and law. And let me just talk, uh, ask a, a lot of specific questions here, because what's going on now is boiling down to a lot of specific things. So one idea that's been talked about is contact tracing, which is an idea that uh, one public health officials can use to identify people who are infected to find out who else they might have infected towards trying to flatten the curve or limit the amount of infections. How do we understand, first of all, what level of government can impose that? And is it legal and constitutional under our system?
1: It's a great, uh, great question, Tom. Tough question in part because we don't really know since why these pandemics seem to come along once every century. The means we would use for contact tracing now, are much more efficient and effective because of smartphones and the information revolution. The government has far greater tools now than it used to 100 years ago. So mm. I think uh, your first question, which level of government would probably do it? Again, probably be the states. The states are the right, the ones that are gonna set policy. Some states are, don't have to do contact tracing. Right. Some states might feel they want to. It'll probably be state government. And since they are in charge of the police power, they have the right to do contact tracing. But right. This was an important limit on the broad power of the state to regulate everybody and everything that goes on in its territory is the Bill of Rights and the Reconstruction Amendments, the right to due process, the right to equal protection. And then here, the Fourth Amendment right to be free of searches from the government Mm -hmm. that are either unreasonable or that require a warrant. That's Mm -hmm. going to be the main issue for contact tracing. The reason why is this, because Uh, contact tracing would probably be done primarily through high technology uh, algorithmic programs using your smartphone. The Supreme court just a few years ago said, if the government wants access to your smartphone, it needs a warrant from a judge. This was a case where ironically it was robbers of cell phone stores. (laughs) The government wanted to trace their movements using their cell phones to show that they had been at the cell phone stores. Every time it was the, the robberies occurred, the court said, even though generally when you hand over your information to a third party, you lose your privacy interest. The smartphone is so important to us today that you need a warrant from a judge. So that might sound like smart us. You could, The contract tracing would probably be impossible, but there's an important exception, which is that if the government is doing it not to track you down for a crime, but to protect public health and safety, which is what the police power is usually used for you might not need a warrant. And so examples of this include drunk driving checkpoints, uh random drug testing, right.
0: um security screening at airports. Exactly, thanks.
1: Security screening okay. at airports. When the government's not trying to pin a crime on you, but is doing something randomized or systematic for public health and safety reasons. You might not need a warrant. And that's what this contract t- testing approach is going to call in the courts to ultimately decide is whether it fits within that exception to the warrant and to our protections for privacy generally.
0: Interesting. Let's talk about lockdown policies. We already have a lot of questions about this, and I have a lot I want to ask you about. Uh, Bruce asked the following question. Our county sheriff has declared that our state's stay-at-home restrictions are unconstitutional. He will not have his deputies enforce them. Is he justified, or do state police powers make him wrong? Uh,
1: uh, Bruce, unfortunately, (laughs) I think... They're not unconstitutional in general approach. The state under the police power does have the right to shut down businesses for public health and safety reasons. Uh, Until the 1930s, you might have had a constitutional right to keep your business open, to make a living, to economic liberty. Uh, But that that right was lost in the 1930s under the pressures of the New Deal, and FDR's effort to pack the Supreme Court, which had struck down the early versions of the New Deal. And since then, the courts have not recognized this kind of right to economic uh, liberty. On the other hand, you do have some rights that are guaranteed by the Bill of Rights. And those are the ones that are gonna have the most success challenging the lockdown restrictions. So for example, I read a lot about protesters, political protesters in places like California and Michigan. I think a state doesn't have the right to just say no protests. Under our law, I think if the government can achieve its purpose of public health and safety and respect those constitutional rights through less, you know, less oppressive means, then the courts are going to require the government to do that. So if you're a protester, you want to show up on the Capitol grounds in Sacramento, you could say, we will keep six feet apart and we're going to wear masks just like you do when you're at the supermarket How can you say we don't have a right to protest? Churches, right? I think the government doesn't have a right to shut down all churches if the worshipers can present reasonable alternatives that allow them to worship, but aren't gonna, right? That are are gonna respect social distancing, like staggered services, sitting six feet apart in the pews, right? Or maybe even I saw drive-ins. I didn't, I was was a kid when they were drive-ins. I never thought they would come back. We've got drive-in churches now. What about that? Would also be an area where I think the government's on very shaky footing. So it's not going to be a general right against lockdowns. It's going to be specific challenges based on the constitutional rights that you have under the Bill of Rights. Unfortunately, since 1935, that no longer includes a sort of economic liberty to make a living. Although personally, I thought that would have been part of. The, the rights of Americans, but the Supreme Court announced under the pressures of the New Deal and the Great Depression that it wouldn't protect those
0: anymore. Hmm, interesting. Uh, gun stores. There's a separate constitutional right to bear arms, and some states have closed gun stores. Some have declared them an essential facility. How, how does the Bill of Rights inform decisions to shut those down or not? Great
1: question. I mean, this may not be a popular answer in California, but I do think, again, the same approach if you have a constitutional right such as a right to bear arms the government can't completely shut it down in the name of public health and safety if there are reasonable alternatives if there are what, you know we call you know sort of, you know if there are other tailored ways for the government to achieve its end so for example if the gun store were to say okay but i'm only going to allow one person in the store at a time or all the customers will have to be 6 feet apart and wear a mask, I can do both. I can respect Second Amendment rights, and I can maintain the social distancing rules, which are in existence at Costco and Target and the local supermarket. Mm -hmm. And so I think a gun store owner, just like the bookstore owner or the church or the political person has a good argument that the state, if it's starting to apply these policies to me when I have a reasonable alternative, doesn't it start to look like the government's taking advantage of these lockdown policies to prevent people from criticizing the government or engaging in their right to bear arms, even though I'm, you know, I, the governor, Governor Newsom in favor of gun control. That's where courts are gonna be extremely suspicious.
0: Interesting. Uh, Ron asked the following question. Can states restrict people from other states coming into their states to prevent COVID-19 infections?
1: That's a great question. Uh, And I know uh, Rhode Island was uh, starting to do that, although, if I were in Rhode Island, I just would never want New Yorkers in my state anyway, even COVID or not. But what's <laughs> going on? And what's going on is uh, it's interesting. The Constitution again doesn't uh, right doesn't give that power to the federal government. Uh, yes or no? Well, it does give the power federal to stop interstate traffic. When it comes to states, since they have the police power, they do have the right to prevent imports or people moving in as long as it's really for public health and safety, and not okay. for some kind of protectionist reason. This is really, there's a lot of cases about this where the court's very suspicious when the uh, state has some regulation effect that has the effect of just advantaging people in the state. You're not allowed as a state to just totally leave the national market of the United States. Um, And so it seems to me here in the case of the COVID pandemic, states do have a reasonable public health and safety reason, just like they would if there were uh, uh, diseased livestock or diseased, diseased food coming into a state states have long had that power it's actually mentioned in the constitution uh, that states have such a power so it seems to me they could and again it's another question where states ought to be reasonable if they really want to defend it so for example I think in rhode island they weren't actually blocking people at new york at the border with new york but you could say we're going to test you or go to self-quarantine you can come into rhode island but go into self-quarantine I think in those conditions, the courts would say, yep, that's within the constitutional power of a state. If it's cut off all traffic between Rhode Island and New York, no matter what, the courts are going to be more suspicious that's Rhode Islanders trying to isolate themselves from the national market of the United States and sort of hoard hoard its resources for its own citizens, which they're not allowed to do.
0: Yeah, here's a couple of really interesting questions. I'm going to try to combine them, uh, John. Uh, you know, the president used the Defense Production Act to compel private companies to produce PPE and therapeutics to help those who had contracted the virus. Uh, but the states are the one that eventually end up with them and have to allocate them for their use. Uh, Terry asked a question, uh, which is interesting, it's the following kind. In Maryland, Governor Hogan had the Maryland National Guard protect a shipment of coronavirus tests to prevent the federal government from taking them. He even had the flight land at Baltimore Airport in Maryland, as opposed to Dulles Airport, which I guess is in D.C., is that right? Uh, Can you discuss the the federal powers to confiscate tests for the national stockpile? And Peter asked another question that's in a similar vein. Uh, Again, using uh, Governor Hogan as an example, he said he has testing kits in, in a secret location guarded by the National Guard can the federal government compel Maryland to disclose the location and seize those supplies to redistribute the supplies to other states? So
1: that's, interesting. that's a great question. It's really interesting because it, it really raises this issue of federal government's control over the borders, interstate commerce versus a state sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And usually we respect the state's sovereign right as a, as a government to manage mm-hmm. its own employees, its own property. Right. Uh, for example, the hypothetical we often give is the federal government can't order a state where to have the capital, where to build its executive, whether to have an executive and legislative branch of a certain kind. And so when the state goes out into the market and buys things or sells things, generally when, they, when they're market participants essentially, just like a business would be, the courts usually say the states are immune from federal regulation when okay. they do that, they're, because they're sovereigns. Right. Uh, so it, it seems to me states have every right to buy masks, Um, there doesn't seem to be a right in the constitution for the federal government to seize that state property. Um, However, I think it's very complicated. I think what Governor Hogan did uh, with his National Guard, which could always be federalized into federal service and become part of the U.S. Army, I'm not sure that was constitutional. Um, He could say he has the right to this uh, property, but the federal government has the right to Stop and inspect everything at the borders, including everything that flies into the country. And so if this was a a flight from I think it was from Korea. uh, That had uh, medical equipment. It seems to me, the federal government has the right to inspect it and decide what to do with it at the border when it comes into the country. Uh, Once it's inside Maryland, I think the now your other question about the Defense Production Act is interesting. And again, it's, it's, uh, I would uh, be wary of using the Defense Production Act to sort of say we can reopen the whole economy. Uh, The Defense Production Act, if you look at its terms, it's really a national security law about in wartime, making sure the government is getting enough war material to fight the war. And so the better use, the best use of it and what the statute really talks about is prioritizing federal requests for equipment. Um, allocating resources so federal demands get met first. To use the Defense Production Act in the way people are worried about would raise constitutional questions. If you used it to sort of take things away from states, if you used it to seize things from states, I think that might run into constitutional difficulties.
0: Let's just shift over to the question of immunity, John. There's been a lot of debate in the last week about whether uh, tort law should be amended. To allow businesses and, and, and ser- businesses and, and commercial operations who are reopening to give them some kind of immunity from subsequent claims that they helped spread the virus or uh, sicken sick people. What are what are your thoughts on that?
1: that a great question, Tom. I, it's uh, you can see in a certain emergency situations we do grant or assume an immunity to people because we don't want them to have to make decisions under the press of time limited information, uh, limited resources, and have their thought, oh, am I going to get sued about this? You know, we want them to make the best decision given all those limitations. Uh, you, so in wartime, for example, soldiers have what's called combatant immunity. Uh, we generally don't allow lawsuits against our leaders and our, uh, our generals because of mistakes they might make in mm-hmm. war. Uh, so you could see a lot of the ways we're starting to think about this pandemic do have that kind of quality. We start thinking of it as a war. Now, first responders, uh, doctors, hospitals don't have any kind of heightened immunity from lawsuits. And so this would have to be done by states. Uh, To me, it seems like a reasonable policy um, because, again, uh, if you think about New York City where uh, we were rushing graduates of medical school right out of med school, right to the front lines, Mm -hmm. Uh, Right? They're not going to be fully trained. They may not have, you know, they're not doing their residency and internships yet. They might have only seen a procedure using a ventilator once or twice and maybe never did it themselves, but it might be important to have someone there rather than no one because of the uh, undercapacity of the hospital system for the wave of cases that came. Uh, If you don't have that kind of immunity, you're creating a huge incentive that prevents society from really marshalling its resources. Um, and then think about the next pandemic, right? I, I hope this is the last one for the next century, but suppose there's one five years from now. If you don't have those immunity rules in place, are you going to be able to get doctors to come out of retirement and volunteer? Are you going to be able to get nurses and first responders to right, rush right away to the emergency? Uh, they're gonna, you're going to impose this kind of liability concern in the thinking of people under conditions when we don't want them to have to worry about it. As opposed to just sort of never, normal, everyday, non-emergency society where we want people to be, you know, we want people to consider the factors more carefully, think about it harder. Emergencies, you know, those are not the best times for the normal tort system.
0: Yeah, exactly. Here's a really uh, fraught question. It's from uh, Timothy and his son elections. What powers do the federal government and or the states have to modify the conditions or processes of the November, November general election?
1: Uh, oh, that's not so fraught. Yeah, that's all you got. Come on, bring it on. Give me something <laughs> worse. You know, the, the reason I'm not, it's actually politically fraught, but constitutionally pretty straightforward. Okay, great. Uh, yeah, because the constitution actually gives Congress the, the power to set the exact date and, uh, of the election. And there's already a bunch of statutes in existence that talk about, and we went through this in 2000 with Bush versus Gore that set an exact schedule about you know, when a state has to have its electoral votes counted when they have yep. to be sent off to Washington. And then the interesting thing is that the constitution also has like a hard date because there's a specific date in the constitution when the Congress ends and when the president's term is over. Yeah. There's nothing that says a president can, right? Suppose we never had elections, right? President Trump's term is going to end at a date certain in January, 20, January 21st. If there's no election, that just means there's no president. Now think about this. I mean, Hence, is not vice president. It might mean Nancy Pelosi becomes president. Yeah. <laughs> so I think everybody wants to make sure we have the elections. But in all seriousness, just one historical, um, one historical tidbit here is, uh, actually, this was seriously debated and discussed during the Civil War. You would talk about an emergency, which, you know, seemed like the Constitution was unprepared for. It would have been the Civil War, where, right, about a third of the country just tried to leave. And Abraham Lincoln was pressed by many people to postpone the elections. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, to Lincoln, it was important that we maintain the constitutional forms, that we go through all the steps the to show that the Constitution could adapt to a civil war. And in fact, he wrote, it's really funny, he wrote a little note to himself and he stuck in his drawer uh, for the next president, who we assumed was gonna be General McClellan. In the election of 1864, until the fall of Atlanta, we weren't sure Lincoln was gonna win. And Lincoln said, if I lose, I am going to do everything I can to support and transfer power to the other party, even though McClellan was campaigning on a peace platform. Mm -hmm. it would have undone everything that Lincoln was trying to do, wanted to sue for peace, probably would have repealed the Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln said it's more important that we observe the measures of government, election, and replacement. And I, I think that's true here. So one last thing is it, it goes to something we were talking about before. You can have the elections, you just have to do them with social distancing. It's very hard, I think, for the government to claim because of this pandemic, we can just shut the elections down completely if there are reasonable alternatives. And we saw that happen in Wisconsin. Uh, yeah. You know, just uh, the Wisconsin primaries were able to be held. And
0: Yeah, we're getting a lot of questions on this. This is a clearly an important issue. Um, I mean, suppose we have to uh, undertake elections in a non-traditional way right what authority does the federal government versus the state government have for modifying the elections ensuring voter identification etc to make sure it's a fair and uh, broadly subscribed election that's one and doesn't the current situation broadly disadvantage challengers relative to incumbents and is there any constitutional mandate or imperative that some political leaders try to address that problem
1: uh, very tough questions. So uh, the, the changing of the rules is interesting. Um, because it goes to your initial question, Tom, about federalism, is it good? You could say federalism is really hardwired into our system in many different areas, many different questions. It's hardwired into our system of elections too. One thing I should have mentioned earlier was, uh, yes, the, another reason the federal government can't take over The pandemic response can't open the economy and close it simultaneously, is because all the resources, the people, the officers, the bureaucracies, the money for government are really at the local level, local and state level. That's also just a statistic I love to throw about: is the New York Police Department has more sworn officers than the entire FBI workforce. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Isn't the national police force available to? manage the pandemic and that's true of elections too under our constitution the elections are to be run by states and often most states often push that down to the county yeah time place and manner are up to the states now they can be overridden by congress congress uses that power occasionally for important reasons like the voting rights act of 1965 to stop discrimination racial discrimination but in general, it's still at the states. So a lot of the th- questions you raised, Tom, about voter ID, about internet voting, and so mm-hmm. that's still up to the states. Uh, as long as they're not using the rules to try to advantage or disadvantage a particular party. So that was Bush versus Gore essentially was a, a basically the Supreme Court said the way Florida, that Florida County, I think it was Palm Beach County, was running that election was actually disfavoring one candidate over another mm-hmm. on purpose, or it was so irrational that it didn't make any sense. Now here, so here, a lot of the scheme, the, a lot of these alternative ideas are up to, think, consider you could have a election, completely mail-in voting, right? no in-person vote. It's up to a state, let them try it. And again, if lots of states see how it works, they might adopt it or they might not. Now, the second question asked about incumbents, it's interesting. This is really more, I think, an issue about lockdowns. If you think about, there's an interesting case that came out of Pennsylvania uh, the U.S. Supreme Court just denied uh, hearing an, an appeal on it. But in Pennsylvania, I love this guy. There's a plaintiff. He was running for a seat in the House, I mean, the Assembly. I'm originally from Pennsylvania, hence this Wawa mug, <laughs> which doesn't exist in California because of the horrible nature of federalism. Only this in the East Coast. This guy, he's named Danny DeVito. Now you may know, what's Danny DeVito doing running for office in Pennsylvania? He'd win like that. But actually, it's a different Danny DeVito. He made this interesting claim. He said these lockdown policies actually protect incumbents because, right? If you're in the state legislature, you're you're doing things. You're an essential employee. You're allowed to keep the operations of government going. People are seeing you. You're doing things. If you're an incumbent, how do you challenge someone? You can't hold fundraisers. You can't meet the voters. You can't have events. And he, so he argued that um, his right. Right, essentially to challenge Humphrey yeah. in an election was violated by the lockdown. Now the court, the Supreme Court said, we're not going to hear at this stage, go back. I'm gonna I, I'm gonna guess that the courts are gonna say uh, in this emergency period, we're going to allow the lockdowns. But as right the curve bends, as infections are reduced, as deaths are reduced, government has to start considering less burdensome alternatives that still protect public health and safety. Would allow uh, challengers to do what they want to do, have to do to run a reasonable election, uh, or put it differently, can they do? Can a why can't a challenger for office do have events under the same rules that Costco has to sell toilet yeah. paper and meat? Uh, I think that's going to be harder for courts to deny as we get farther along.
0: Yeah, John, let's switch over to the international uh, legal front for a while. I know you do a lot of research on this. Um, and this is about China. We know that Chinese doctors and scientists encountered COVID-19 patients as early as November of last year, and, they've alerted, and they alerted Chinese authorities, but Beijing didn't notify the world. Should China be held accountable? And if so, what are the legal remedies in an international setting uh, to do so?
1: Yes, I think China should be held accountable, not because of any desire to punish China, which is what you hear in some of the rhetoric these days. But in order to encourage better behavior in the future, and this appeal to the economist in Utah, right? yeah. you, Tom, you want someone when they're doing something to what we call internalize the costs and benefits of the decision, so they can make the right choice about whether to do something or not. Mm-hmm. What China has effectively done here is externalized a lot of the costs of its choice; mm-hmm. those costs being now hundreds of thousands died, millions being affected. Right. So if you think about what China did, they, their benefit was the Chinese Communist Party you know, prevented knowledge of the outbreak, prevented early study of it, prevented doctors and scientists from studying it, prevented them from coming elsewhere in the world, like from the CDC to, to come and study it. Um, there are studies which suggest that more than 90% of the deaths and infections would have been stopped if China mm-hmm. had been more transparent and open. They wanted, Chinese kind of party wanted to show that they were competent. Yeah. Uh, have, maintaining this, rep, uh, this image of competency means you don't want to bring to public light catastrophes, disasters, mismanagement of the kind we saw in Wuhan in the early days. So they, the Chinese kind of realized the benefits of that. The costs are borne by everyone else in the world. So to stop that from happening, again, for the next pandemic, you want China to realize those costs. Mm -hmm. how you do it is a difficult question. Uh, There's no no international court that's going to hear a case like this. China's not going to cooperate. They've refused to obey international decisions they lost, for example, involving the South China Sea, which is an issue a lot of Hoover scholars are studying. So I've argued that countries have to engage in Mm self-help. They have to, for example, claim that Chinese assets in their countries can be used Mm-hmm. To satisfy compensation claims by their citizens, to pay for some of the costs, it won't come close, but that's a start.
0: Yeah.
1: For example, India has a. I'm sorry, China has a lot of investments in other countries, like in yeah. India, and in Italy, under its Belt and Road Initiative, in Pakistan. Those countries could, uh, you know, f- refuse to pay back those debts, expropriate that property, and say we're not doing it just to steal stuff. We're doing it to. Pay compensation to the people in our country that were harmed by China's failures at the beginning of the outbreak.
0: Interesting. So you're just looking for a remedy that will incent the right behavior the next time this comes around is the idea. Exactly. And it could be damages. It could be just promises or new institutions that help the rest of the world monitor the outbreak of viruses more quickly from China.
1: That's a good point. You're seeing proposals. Uh, I'm working on something for for, um, one of our publications defining ideas about what a Post-pandemic, uh, WHO will look like, and as you say, uh, right to encourage China, you can give it benefits, or you could give it, or you can impose sanctions. The economists in you will say they're all the same thing; they're just different right. points on the spectrum, right? And so, you can also try to encourage China, like we're going to allow you to participate, to play more leadership in the world yeah. if you're on good behavior. In addition to sanctioning you if you're on bad behavior.
0: Yeah, uh, Martin asked kind of an interesting question uh, several times today. John, you said that the power of state and local governments to kind of dig into the Bill of Rights uh, really depend upon their ability to declare a public health emergency, right? So he asked, uh, what is the criteria to declare a public health emergency? Does it not need to meet a credible standard? You know, can if it does that? It might you know if if there isn't an objective standard, might it violate? constitutional rights? He's worried about the arbitrariness of this, I guess, is what the idea
1: is. Yeah, I, that's a good question. And you could say, look, people have accused President Trump and past presidents of using this national emergency power at the federal level in um, an arbitrary way. Uh, for example, you might recall President Trump declared a national emergency at the border, and used yeah. to shift money out of Defense Department accounts to uh, wall building accounts. And you could say that the same arguments are true at the state level. Now, each state, as we were just discussing about federalism, can have its own system for when there's a public health emergency. Uh, Out here in California, there's a law that essentially gives Governor Newsom pretty unbridled power to decide when there's an emergency. It sets some criteria. They're very loose and ambiguous. Um, And you could say, look, uh, that's because the people of the state wanted the governor to have a lot of freedom to. Take in account new unforeseen circumstances. That's really the root of emergencies, and I think this is true at federal and state levels. Is uh, the legislature when it writes a law can't anticipate what's going to be hap- what's going to happen in the next emergency. That's why it's an emergency. <laughs> it's because it doesn't really fit in the cases we saw before, and so that's really and this is a lot of things I work about is that's sort of the nature of executive power. And that's the nature of successful executives is to respond. Now, look at you, Tom, you're the executive at the Hoover Institution. I mean, Hoover's, well, Hoover's responded amazingly to this crisis. You know, we can't meet, but the amount of videos and content push out is incredible. That's a sample at a smaller yeah. scale. But if you want executives to have that ability you can't write statutes that are so narrow it ties them down for the next right. crisis that's the balance yeah. you have to get
0: discretion is an essential part of being an executive right yeah. at some level katie asked a really Henri question i'm gonna i love this question um you know in many in many respects federalism is about the allocation of authority between the federal state and local levels she, she wants to know what are your thoughts on the recent confederations of states that have formed to coordinate COVID responses There's one in the Northeast, one in the West. Uh, Will will these last? Are they destructive to the fabric of our democracy or critical to it?
1: So on this one, Katie should go back to the 18th century and visit the Constitutional Convention because they did worry about this. In fact, they worried about it a lot more than we may do today, which is what happens if the states try to group themselves by different regions and try to pull away from federal authority? And so not surprisingly, they put a clause in the Constitution that really addresses this. It's called the compacts clause, and it, ref- it prohibits states from making agreements and compacts with other states unless Congress approves. So generally, you're not allowed to. So the key is, is this really an agreement? Or is it just states making promises that they don't have to keep? That's really the dividing line. And so right now, these regional groups they seem to be more like best practices. You know, if one state violates them, there's nothing the other states can do to that state. Uh, there's It's not legal agreement. If that's the case, then it's okay under the Constitution. And I think it's, a, it's just another way for the states to keep competing with each other for the approval of their citizens and for all of us who, want, who can move and should go to the states we think have done a better job so as long as they're not legally binding, I think they're constitutional and, they're, and they may well survive.
0: Interesting. Uh, John, I have a concluding question, which is a fantastic question, I'm, and I'm really interested um, in your answer. It's a question about the future of federalism, and it's asked by John Newell, and he says the following. So it seems like since the New Deal, the concept of federalism has become an antiquated concept, and today most people don't even understand the concept. goes on to elaborate what he means by antiquated. There has been an immense consolidation of power in the federal government in the last 80 years, enabled by the courts. Perhaps this crisis will bring back a rebirth in federalism or maybe a pendulum swing back towards state and local authority. What is your general prediction about that?
1: Uh, I agree with John's description of what's happened. Uh, what's going to happen in the future is a prediction. Uh, people predicting a revival of federalism for the last 30 years, ever since President Reagan came, back, uh, came into office, um, The pendulum has swung back a little bit from the New Deal and the Great Society, but nothing approaching what it was before the New Deal. Um, Before the New Deal, basically the federal government could not regulate production, agriculture, manufacturing within a state. That's why baseball was not considered to be under federal power, because it was a game that was played in one state at a time. Uh, I agree that Uh, You could see the pendulum shifted back because the successful responses to the pandemic have primarily been at the state level. You're seeing high approval ratings for governors, much higher than for the federal executive or legislative branches. And so you could see that kind of maybe liberals as well as conservatives now are starting to appreciate the virtues of decentralized government in terms of competition, resiliency of institutions and protections of individual liberty. So yes, I could, you could start to see. The Supreme Court has been trying to push the pendulum back a little bit, but it really can't happen successfully unless it's not just Congress and the president, but also the state governors now take advantage of the good jobs they have done, the popular support they have to now lead us into the recovery in an effective and efficient way that's mm-hmm. more balanced and gives, I think, right, gives voice to the, the people who are demanding right, a right to make a living right, to reopen their businesses, not to be so ideologically wedded to the idea of a a shutdown everywhere at all times. I think that would do a lot to restore respect for federalism, use of federalism in the future.
0: Wow, great. John, thanks so much. What a wonderful conversation. We're glad you joined us today.
1: Uh, Thanks a lot, Tom. Thanks a lot, everybody, for tuning in.
0: Great. I want to remind everybody that our next Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing will be tomorrow. Friday, May 8th at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern Time with Edward Lazier and Neil Ferguson. Ed Lazier is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of economics at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. He served at the White House from 2006 to 2009, where where he was chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Neil Ferguson is a renowned historian and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He is the author of 15 books, including his most recent one, entitled The Square and the Tower, which was a New York Times bestseller. With the historic jobs report set to come out in the morning, I hope you'll be able to join us for a fascinating conversation with a renowned labor economist and a distinguished historian. They will discuss what is, what is expected to be unemployment numbers not seen since the Great Depression. Thank you for joining us today and we hope to see you again tomorrow. Please stay safe and enjoy the rest of the day. Goodbye.